In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 9. In these chapters, David's remarkable military victories as the king of Israel are recounted. He defeats the Philistines, the Moabites, the Arameans, the Edomites, and he establishes his authority over the surrounding nations. David dedicates the spoils of war to the Lord and appoints officials to administer justice and peace in his kingdom. But then David remembers his covenant with Jonathan, the son of Saul, who died in battle. So he seeks out any surviving member of Saul's family and finds Mephishbosheth, sorry about that, Jonathan's crippled son. He restores to him all the land that belongs to Saul and invites him to eat at his table as one of his sons. Good morning, folks, and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, June 22nd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by a generous contribution from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF produces a variety of Lutheran resources in foreign languages. You can learn more about all that they do on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, joining us to help us explore 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 9 is the Reverend Matthew Knauss, Associate Pastor of Community Lutheran Church in Escondido, California. Uh, I've already messed up uh, uh, Mephibosheth's name. Did I mess up Escondido? Is that how you pronounce that? That's exactly how you do it, Escondido. Oh, good. <laughs> well, welcome to the program. I, I know that about a year ago you were on with uh, my predecessor, uh, President Brady Finnern, who's now on Concord Matters on Saturdays. But this is the first time I've had the pleasure of having you a guest uh, with me as the host. So maybe, if you don't mind, brother, taking just a, a little bit, sharing with the people at home a little bit about yourself and how God's working through you and and your congregation there in Escondido. Absolutely, absolutely. Again, thanks for having me on the show, uh, Phil. It's an awesome opportunity. Um, I am a California boy born and raised, and uh, currently in Southern California, Escondido is in San Diego County, and our church has two campuses, one in Escondido and one in San Marcos, which is just west of Escondido. And a wonderful opportunity to serve with Pastor Bob Hiller. He's been a joy to serve with. And uh, I'm a second career pastor. So uh, this is my first call out of the seminary. I've been here almost five years now. And previously to that, I was working in restaurants in different fashions. And then with a conversation from my home pastor back in Ventura, California at that time, uh, he simply said, you should be a pastor. And I said, no. And as we see, God has his way instead of us having our way. And here I am. Uh, it was a wonderful journey with my beautiful wife and three children. And uh, we uprooted from Southern California and went back to St. Louis, our first venture into the Midwest and uh, vicared at Christ Greenfield in uh, Gilbert, Arizona and then received the call out here and the placement to Community Lutheran. And it's a beautiful congregation, quite a wonderful place to be. Uh, and God's been working in great ways. Uh, we have um, remained open and consistent through all of the craziness of California. We certainly had uh, our ups and downs over the past three years, but it is a loving congregation and God continues to work through it. 
Well, that's wonderful, and and you know, I'm glad that the the Lord has brought you out of uh, one career into another. You know, I'm a second career guy too, and so I always like to have the second career guys on the program. <laughs> uh, nothing against, of course, my system friends who started off in Lutheran preschool and never <laughs> left Lutherandom all the way up. Maybe that's you too, but uh, but I love I love having the different perspectives, and it's just great to see how God is bringing all sorts of men to ministry, and I think it's our shared experiences whether you kind of knew you were going to be a pastor from the age of one or or if you were, you know, like me and you, who the Lord had to form us in other ways before bringing us into ministry. It's just it's just great to see all the different perspectives and experiences that we can put into, I guess, put into service for God's for God's kingdom. Absolutely. So, um, I'm, I will say that uh, today's text is interesting because, you know, we've moved out of 1 Samuel. We're coming into 2 Samuel. And David is now sort of, a, uh, sort of, he is officially king. And, but today's text, at least with chapter 8, is sort of a preview. It, it doesn't really, uh, it, it talks about things that David has done, but not really in chronological order. He talks about victories, doesn't even include all of them. It's just sort of giving us a, 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 a bird's eye view of, of David's accomplishments as we start to adjust to him being king and Saul's dynasty has passed. Um, but before we dive into our text, um, I think it's good for us to start off in prayer, uh, but then I just want you to maybe give us a little insight after the prayer into where we've been before we you know, head into where we're going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my pleasure. We pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word, this word that is strong and consistent, this word that you have spoken to your people since even before creation, bringing it into order and then throughout the years of your creation as we continue to hear your word and then ultimately giving us your word in the flesh in Jesus and how we see your love shown to us through him. We pray that as he now sits at your right hand and you have sent us the Holy Spirit, we pray, Lord, that you would guide us by your spirit in your word, that we would have our eyes focused on your steadfast love and mercy and your forgiveness and grace for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brother, so take us into the uh, a little bit of background, right? Set the stage for what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned before, David is king. And if we look I mean, immediately before this, we see an interesting moment where David and God are talking, and David's got a particular plan for him. He, he kind of says, hey, you know, God, now that you have set me up here as king and all this seems to be good, I am living in this beautiful house, and you are still living in a tent. So how about I build you a house? And God says, hey, you know, that's very kind. Thanks a lot. Uh, but <laughs> I'm going to build for you a house and uh, mine will come later. Don't worry about that necessarily, you know. And so just as we look at those immediate verses beforehand, that's, that's really the conversation that we see going on is that David wants to build God a house. God says, thanks. And he says, but you know, David, I'm going to make of you a dynasty. I'm going to make of you a a name and a permanency in this land. So that's kind of where we're just coming out of in chapter seven. And I'm sure as uh, the other speakers have mentioned in the previous shows, they've brought you up to speed a little bit before that, but that's immediately where we're at. No, no, and that's good because, I mean, the whole idea that God is saying, 
you know, you don't have to do anything for me. I'm, I'm God. <laughs> I, I'm going to do something for you. Yeah. It, it also gives us a little bit of understanding why the author of Second Samuel is now going to give us a little foretaste of David's victories and his victories over all these different nations. It's 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 like a look and now remember because remember he's obviously writing well after the fact. Now remember all the ways that God did use David. Uh, and I think that's where we're going to get into today. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read uh, just the first few verses, get us started with this text. Uh, this is going to be, of course, Second Samuel chapter 8, beginning with the first verse. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methegamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Let's just just stop there. I know it's only two verses, but already some things are standing out to me. I mean, we're getting David defeating the Philistines, subduing them. Um, we remember how Saul was, you know, that's why God had put Saul in charge. David's starting to fulfill that. Um, but already with these with these Moabites, what's this stuff with uh, measuring them with a line and, and you know, two lines, you know, are out and one line is okay? What is that about? Yeah, yeah. Well, even before we get there, I know you mentioned earlier how we see these accounts in David's victories happening um, and how it's not necessarily chronological. One way to look at this, which is very helpful, is that it's geographic as we look at it. So we skip over, you know, the Philistines really quick. There's just a really quick mention of them over in the west. So this land to the west of Jerusalem that uh, David has certainly had interaction with in the past uh, is now humbled, you know, as it said, or subdued. And David has taken particular areas from them out of their control and into his control. And then you're right, this part with the Moabites is strange. It's a a weird portion to walk through, but there are two details there. And as we walk through scripture, it is always amazing to slow down where there are details. Now, I I was confused about the measuring off of the two-thirds to be put to death and the one-third to live. And I was thankful that most of the commentaries were also confused. None of them really knew exactly what to do with it, other than the fact that there's a couple of different ways to look at it. Uh, one, it's a way of making sure that this nation just to the east, as, Philist, uh, as the Philistines are off in the west, we now have the Moabites over in the east, and uh, he's making sure that they can't really come back and be a threat. Yet, there's also a moment of mercy of saying, there's some of you that are going to remain alive. Um, you know, possibly because they're distant cousins being descendants of Lot, of Abraham's nephew. Not really sure necessarily, uh, but nonetheless, he leaves a portion of them alive. And the next interesting part is that they bring him tribute. And there's a couple of these groups of people that bring tribute. And as we go along, it's going to be interesting to watch how and where that tribute is put to use. So we get a little intro here into folks that are bringing tribute, David's 
an acting of judgment, but also a bit of mercy in leaving some alive and not just completely wiping them out. And I think another interesting thing to think on is that in this area of the promised land where God has put David, you know, the other side of the Jordan wasn't necessarily promised. In fact, they came from the other side of the Jordan. And so there's also this geographic boundary where David is staying within uh, the boundaries of what God has set up for his people as well. Is it, that kind of help a little bit with that section on the Moabites? And I would think so. Also, one thing that I've observed is that, that part of that mercy idea, right? So he's showing some mercy. We've seen the Moabite show David some mercy and oh, kindness. Oh, good point, yeah. Yeah, back in 1 Samuel 22, you know, he's with the king of Moab, and and this is right before Gad comes and re, you know reveals some things to him. But, yeah. you know, he's le- he says, hey, let my folks stay with you till I know what God's doing. That's so right, there's, yeah. There's this, there's this interesting juxtaposition between God has clearly declared what the fate is for the surrounding nations that have risen up against um, his people and who are inhabiting the land that he's given to his people. At the same time, you know, there is mercy from God, but, you know, just being (laughs) friendly to God's people doesn't get you off the hook for the judgment that's coming. Right, right. Yeah, it's (laughs) It's interesting. I mean, you almost see this like a very tense and strange family reunion to one extent, you know, where they're like, we're going to spend some time with you, but uh, there's also a couple other things we need to continue to talk about. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, let's add some more verses to the conversation. I'm going to read three through eight. Here we go. David also defeated Hadad Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Berothai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took very much bronze. <laughs> All right, so we're going to stop there. It's the end of verse 8. So, yeah, so now here's another guy, Hadad-Ezer. Pretty mm-hmm. fun name to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's the king of, of Zobah. Um, I know in the variants we have some discrepancies on some of these numbers. Like, you know, I think I think one manuscript suggests 1,700,000 horsemen or uh, some ES, I'm sorry, not ESV, but some translations like the, uh, I think it's the NIV will say, well, it's 1,000 horse and 700 riders, and it's a lot of divisions over some of these specific numbers. I don't think it matters, which is what I think. People need to remember they get <laughs> they get bogged down and and like well you know is it this many horsemen and this many foot soldiers who cares right the point here is that David is being victorious but victorious by the hand of Yahweh take us through this section yeah absolutely and you're right I mean with the numbers to remember as well and not that I am a complete linguistic by any means but or linguist I guess would be the right word uh, but numbers in Hebrew too 
also start to look a little familiar or similar. Um, nonetheless, we're dealing with big numbers. Whatever the numbers are, they're big numbers. These victories are substantial, right? And so now we're dealing with the northern area above Jerusalem, above Israel, really, as we're looking at Syria, or if you hear other translations with Aram and Damascus, of course, being a little bit closer to and that area, but you're dealing with this whole north area up by the Euphrates, and there's a bit of an allusion here to a previous victory um, over the Ammonites up in that area, the Ammonite War. And so David had already made a presence up there, and then Hadad Ezer is more than likely trying to come back and establish his presence or take it back from David. And so as he moves to reestablish this area at the Euphrates. Uh, David is there and continues to put up a fight and continues to hold on to this area and build this northern cushion um, around this promised land down in Israel. Uh, it's interesting as we look at the horses and all that sort of thing, we think, well, he captured so many different chariots and charioteers and all these things going on. Why would he not hold on to all those horses and all those chariots and all those means of battle and means of war, especially if he's on these conquering military campaigns? Well, as you get close to home for David in Jerusalem, the, the area gets a little more hilly. And if you've ever biked up hills, you would also kind of have an understanding that chariots and horses aren't the best means of transportation around the mountains. They're really great on flatland. They're not going to be the best on hill trails and on mountainous areas. And so that's one reason that David keeps some, but not a lot. And the other reason that he's doing this, he's removing them from the enemy's arsenal, but not necessarily bringing them into his own arsenal, as they wouldn't be helpful in his main land of where he's at. And if he took them all home, he'd also have to maintain them. Now, above and beyond all of that, if you go back even you know further into Moses's writings, into the Torah with, De with Deuteronomy, uh, there is a proscription from God that the kings of Israel were not to own a lot of horses. Uh, it's back in Deuteronomy 17, 16. And so even at this point, in all of this victorious um, success that David is having with these military campaigns, he's still letting God shape not only the battle, but also the victory and everything that comes from that battle. So he's, he's still letting God's word be that boundary to how far he moves, which is an amazing thing for all of us to think on when we think of the successes and different things that come in life. Where does God set the boundary and how does he guide us to use those things that come from those successes? Well, once again, David's faithfulness to Yahweh and his word is... Again, recalling, I guess, Saul's lack thereof, right? Saul would have been mm -hmm, mm -hmm. enamored with the number of chariots and horsemen that he, he or horses he's able to acquire. I, obviously, I'm speculating, but you <laughs> know, just the attitude would be, you know, look at all that I have and control and possess. And yet, David, as you said, 
he's following the will of God, which we certainly commend him for. Absolutely. And then when we do hear again that these uh, folks, um, I was trying to remember in there, uh, all of the things that he took, the gold and the silver and the large quantities of bronze, uh, we see in there that they are dedicated to Yahweh. They're not dedicated to the palace. They're not dedicated to Jerusalem or, or the treasury or anything along those lines. Because remember, there's still this love that David has for Yahweh to set something up to where God would have a house. And so as he takes these things, these uh, treasures and spoils of war, and as tribute is also brought in the same manner, he's taking these monies and he's setting them aside in a godly savings account, I guess you could say, uh, you know, to build this house, to build this place uh, for God. Um, and so again, you're right, that's a great contrast between David and Saul to where these successes come along and David still saying, these are for God, not for me, to where Saul would have said, yeah, what, what's the next room I can build on the house, you know? <laughs> right. And, and again, I'm obviously just speculating, but even in David's desire, as we talked about last time, to build a house for Yahweh, it's contrary to probably the reign of Saul, where he would have been more interested in building a house for himself. Right, yeah. And so even though David is, is chastised a little bit for that, thinking that God can't maintain his own, his own house, <laughs> um, you know, we, we still see here that David is essentially doing the right things. And I think this is why, I mean, we could certainly, and we will, as we go through 2 Samuel, mm -hmm. find plenty of cases where David is disobeying the Lord, where oh, David— sure is not following God's will, where David is being unfaithful. He's certainly not perfect. He's a type of the Christ, not the Christ. But um, at the same time, I think these are selected for this section to show us just what you've been telling us about, that look where David has been faithful, and, and this is why he's worth honoring, and this is why God's making a, as you, as you said, dynasty out of his house, because that dynasty is ultimately going to lead us to Jesus. I don't want to get into any more text because we're getting very close to our break, so we're going to go a little quicker when we return from break, but before we go, anything else you want people to know about this section? No, I mean, just as we move through it, we're going to continue to see this area around Israel and Jerusalem um, be handed to David, and it's amazing to see God working through him. Wonderful. So, folks, do not go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor uh, Knaus and I will keep on going through 2 Samuel chapter 8. We'll finish that up, move into chapter 9. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. 
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Matthew Canals, Associate Pastor of Community Lutheran Church in Escondido, California. Folks, thank you for joining us for our study this morning. I do pray that God blesses you through it. Thy Strong Word can be heard in St. Louis on AM 850, but remember, you can listen to us live or on demand at kfuo.org. And taking the show on the road is just as easy as downloading KFUO's own mobile app. Or if you prefer to use something like uh, Apple Podcasts or, or the Google Podcasting platform or really any others, you can find us there too. Just search for Thy Strong Word. And if you want to ask a question or make a comment about today's show, you can email me, as always, at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search for my name and drop by and say hello. It's as easy as that. So I tell you what, let's get back to the text, though, because we have a little bit more to get through for chapter 8. Um, I'm just going to, brother, I'm just going to go ahead and read the next uh, two sections, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll talk about it. So this is going to be verses 9 through Oh, let's see here, 14. All right. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of uh, Hadad-Ezer, Toy sent his son Jeram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with Toy. And Jeram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze, these also King David dedicated to Yahweh, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations that he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Jobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And Yahweh gave victory to David when, wherever he went. Okay, so pausing there then, you know, <laughs> Toy, king of Hamath, um, you know, he hears that David's defeating his enemies, right? I guess the... the uh, the, the enemy of my enemies is my friend, maybe something going on there. Um, but but we also see here, more generally, that David's getting lots of loot. And yeah. he's, well, I don't know, he's doing the right thing. He's setting up these garrisons and all these places to maintain power and control. Uh, but, of course, all of this is done because Yahweh is giving the victory to David wherever he went. Uh, some significant things from this text. Uh, what, what do we see here? Yeah, I, first off, thanks for being the one that's reading all of the names. You get uh, some great names to read through all of this. <laughs> I, I think our next subject is going to be in the New Testament, to give myself a break. As long as, you, <laughs> as long as you say it with confidence, only the Hebrew scholars know any different. <laughs> yeah, stay out of Acts and you're fine. All right, <laughs> as far as names go. That's um, where I'm going. But anyway, Oh, we'll well, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, so yeah, we have King Toy. I love this. He hears what David's doing up in the north, and then he sends his son to say, "Hey, David, how you doing? You feeling okay? How's your health?" You know, as it's translated, you know, to see, just check in on him, uh, and I'm sure to say thank you. Obviously, I mean, with the amount of tribute that he sends to him, and this is that part that right. I, I wasn't necessarily alluding to before, but just spoke a little early on. But this is where we see all of that tribute coming in. And you're right, David's doing the right thing with it. He's receiving it and he's handing it straight over to God. 
um, saying, look, this is yours. You're doing this work. Yes, you're putting me to work, but you're still providing the victory. You're still providing the spoils. You're still providing the success. And you're protecting these you know, people of yours through these battles. And uh, this belongs to you, God. Uh, it, again, it, it's always interesting walking through specific details of the Old Testament, also seeing where we might connect some things to it. Not that everything has to be connected to our day and age, but when we see a guy that is described as a man after God's own heart here in David, it's interesting to think sometimes uh, how we might be looked at at times as people after God's own heart. When we see those job successes, when we see those wonderful opportunities in life where we receive these uh, you know, monetary gains, uh, what does it look like to be able to give those back to God uh, without strings attached necessarily of just saying, here, God, this is yours. What do you want to do with it? You know, you know my desires and where I want them to go, but here's, here's what you have done, and this is all going back to you. Now, the garrisons parts, that's kind of interesting, too. You notice on the east and the west, he didn't set up garrisons. On the north and the south, he does set up garrisons. And, you know, that has a lot to do with that main road of travel there from Egypt all the way through up into the north and through to Damascus and all of that. And, and he's setting a watch. He's setting those boundaries again geographically to say, this is the space that God has given us, and we're going to keep an eye out on it. You know, so we, we see this beautiful summation then as everything comes down through chapter 8 of how God continues his promise and fulfills his promise to David to make a, a house for him. And we've now seen the four walls of that house set out with the west and the east and the north and the south all having victories there. And uh, David's credited with the victory. So, well, you kind of where about, we're at. Yeah, you talked about him dedicating these spoils to God, and I think he's able to do that because he recognizes that all that he has is a gift of God. You know, yeah. all of these victories yeah. have been given to him. And connecting that to us today, that's the attitude we must have. Mm. Right? You know, it's like, I, I didn't have this before God gave it to me. So, and I was doing fine. So therefore yeah. I don't need it except to serve the Lord. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think that's a great connection. Absolutely. And, and to expand it out of the monetary mm -hmm. things, I mean, we think of the gifts that God gives us of peace, of security, of joy, of uh, mercy, of forgiveness, all these things that God gives us as gifts and to remember to not just hold on to them for ourselves, but also see what it looks like to share those with our neighbor. Oh, agreed with that for sure. I mean, I think we talk about money all the time because, frankly, it's easy. I mean, it's easy. It's concrete. We understand right. it. It's something we all share. But you are right. There are so many things beyond just money mm -hmm. uh, or even possessions that, that really apply here. Now, another thing that stands out to me, is, I think is striking, in fact, is verse 13. Mm. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the first sort of knee-jerk reaction is to put the worst construction on this. Um, you know, David, oh, he must be doing this to make a name for himself. Mm. Or to understand, of course, the, the text a little bit more grammatically, the author is just saying that David is making a name for himself. 
But here's my point. When it says David is making a name for himself, I don't think we're to think, oh, look, this is all about David, because he obviously ends with Yahweh giving the victory to David. But the name of David is significant. It, uh-huh. It's not just, here's some schmo named David in ancient Israel who's a really powerful leader. His name, making a name for himself, people knowing his name is important in salvation history. Uh-huh. It, 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 it comes back into play as Jesus is you know, wandering around Judea and people are calling him the son of David and stuff like that. It's uh, David's name is going to be really important. So these are this is just the beginning of the victories that is are being made in David's name, and, and it continues all the way through Golgotha. Absolutely. I mean, whether it's him or God working through him for these things, as the writer accounts it, David's name is being established. It's being anchored in this time and place. Yeah. Established, I think, is the is a great word there, right? Because you know, making a name for himself, you know, we we think that a little bit more selfishly, but establishing the name, that's great. Yeah. Well, let's read this next little section. It ends chapter eight. Um, so it just it, gives us some officials, right? So David yeah. reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Saraiah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites, and the Pelethites and David's sons were priests." All right, yeah. I was kind of holding my breath on that one. So, <laughs> uh, but all, so all these folks, um, David is he's establishing a government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's establishing a government. These are the folks that are around him in the palace. Uh, it's it's kind of an an ending point in this account. Uh, we're going to see a transition from eight to nine to where there isn't a continuation in the chronological story at this point. And we just see this ending summation and saying, okay, after all these victories have been done, here are the folks that David had around him. Um, Just a couple of interesting notes. Uh, The Cherethites and the Pelethites are are thought to have a Philistine background. David may have come across them in his time in Ziklag in uh, Philistia. The Cherethites, if I remember my notes right, were a mercenary clan that was used. Uh, They might have been there as a palace guard, and he may have called on them from time to time to kind of help in the battle as he had subdued that area. And then different translations. Uh, I heard in that last line of yours, the sons of David were palace administrators. Well, excuse me. In the translation he had, it said the sons of David were priests. There's a lot of contention about that because they weren't from the priestly line. Right. And as we get to know them later, they didn't act very priestly either. (laughs) Um, But that'll come down the road. We're not going to go all the way down there. So in other translations, you will hear that the sons of David were palace administrators as this idea of a priest or prince or friend and all these different ideas about their office were a little conflated in certain words. So uh, the 
what seems to flow from scripture the best is that they weren't priests in the way that we think of priests because Zedok, the son of Ahitub, and Achimelech, the son of Abiathar, were high priests. These were mm -hmm. higher officials. And the sons of David were lower palace officials at that point, you know, and not necessarily priests in the way that we think of them. And I, I think that's a, a good thing to point out. The Hebrew there is Kohen, right? Kohen. Mm -hmm. It's, it's mm -hmm. the word for priest. It is, uh, it is. So, but, so context helps, but here's how I think uh, it might help people to understand. Sure. Um, so we here in the United States have secretaries, right? Secretary oh, yeah. of Defense, yeah. Secretary yeah. of Agriculture, whatever. Uh, but in, in other parliamentary countries, they'll have ministers, right? The Minister mm. of Defense yeah. and the Minister of the Interior, um, the Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And while they minister in the sense that they serve the people to whom they are uh, elected or called, um, you know, we could conflate that word minister with serving people as 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 ministers of God, right? So it's, it's all about service. In this case, I, I think you're right to point out that priests here is almost like a kingdom of priests connotation, mm, you know, not mm -hmm, not exercising mm -hmm. the rituals and rites publicly, but rather uh, you know serving the will of the people. A yeah. And whether or not they do a good job at that, we'll also discuss as the chapters <laughs> come. Um, but yeah, I think that's a that is important because I think people might get hung up um, and say, as you pointed out already, you know, David's not from the tribe of Levi, right? You know, um, right. so ministers, I think, might be even a better way to put it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, well, why don't we make that transition into chapter 9? Great, this is beautiful. Mm. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. <laughs> and the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amael, at Lodibar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his faith and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage, and he said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Good place to stop at the end of verse 8. <laughs> yeah. So I, I got to tell you, you know, Jonathan... Um, and David's relationship, which we've talked about before, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, just this amazing, beautiful uh, connection between two men and their great love for each other in a, in a very godly way. And David made this covenant with him, and he still wants to remember it. He wants to keep it. But I will say, from a purely human standpoint, here is David, whom Saul sought to kill at every turn, and Saul's house has been wiped out, and David says, anybody left remaining that, you know, is a, is, is a relative of Saul? Now, if that were Saul asking, it would be very much in the context of, 
uh, who is this king of the Jews that we may go worship? <laughs> I want to go worship him, too. So, I mean, I wonder, and I'm speculating, of course, if Ziba <laughs> at first is thinking, why do you want to know? <laughs> why do you oh, want to know? Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with you in there. You know, if if there isn't a mindset of knowing who David is as far as a godly man to one extent or knowing of his history with how he did exercise patience with Saul and all those settings, yeah, there would be a moment of really being scared. Here comes the king wondering if the predecessor king has anyone left that might be a challenge to the throne? You know, here is Jonathan's descendant with Mephibosheth. And physically, of course, I mean, he's looked down upon because he's crippled. In fact, his name in one translation I saw said, from the mouth of shame, was right. what Mephibosheth's name translates to. Uh but yeah, I can imagine Zeba kind of standing there as a servant to the family saying, nah, I don't know if I want to tell you if there's anybody <laughs> left or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're the king, so. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're the king. So I, I guess I'll point in that direction. Um, yeah, you know, Zeba's still overseeing this household of Jonathan. And uh, you're right, that beautiful friendship, that brotherhood of Jonathan and David you know, in modern times, we see it portrayed in different movies. I think one of the beautiful ones is in Lord of the Rings uh, with Samwise Gamgee and Frodo. You see these two guys that have such a deep commitment, camaraderie, and love for one another that they die for the other. Um, and David is looking back to see this friend who had died in battle, longing for some way to honor him. And so he's looking for the children of Jonathan, and he's finding Mephibosheth and gives him this great promise. You know, uh, you know, I think it's interesting, too, though, that Mephibosheth, you know, so he's lame in the feet um, or mm -hmm. crippled in his feet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's the, the Bible uh, is it's hard to keep up with all the PC terms, but he is <laughs> he is disabled. He is differently abled. Sure. Um, whatever his situation is, this is a guy who's, as you pointed out already, he's looked down upon. Well, yeah, but, he calls himself a dead dog. I mean, that's, right. that's pretty low. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's also and I don't know if there's any significance to this, but he's living in Lodabar, which um, mm -hmm. is not. Gibeah. I mean, why wouldn't he be hanging out in Gibeah? Um, you know, that's yeah. that's Saul's that's Saul's hometown. That as Saul's descendant. Um, I'm sure there are lots of reasons, but you know, I think that the, the mean, fact that we're told this specifically might be significant. As you, you said, we've got to slow down when we see the details. Yeah, you can almost imagine a character like Saul in his later years scattering anybody in his family who's not worthwhile. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, it's not there. That's reading between the lines. You're right, you're right, That's man. looking at a character of a person in Scripture and just imagining what he might do. You know, I mean, you look at Herod in just before Jesus's day and then the Herod and Herods of Jesus's day and how likely they were to go kill family if they presented a challenge to the throne. You know, and how um, anxious they were about anybody taking their position. And so Saul, in his craziness, very likely could have just said, oh, Mephibosheth, you're not worth it. I'm going to 
I'm going to scatter you out of the household into another place. Yeah. Well, and, you know, David, it's it's said in the context of him keeping the covenant with Jonathan. So mm-hmm. we saw that back mm-hmm. in 1 Samuel 20. Mm-hmm. Jonathan asks him specifically, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when Yahweh cuts off everyone from the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Yeah. And he promised him that. But what's what we also must remember is he made the same covenant promise with Saul. Mm. Right? So Saul mm-hmm. himself said in 1 Samuel 24, um, swear to me, therefore, by Yahweh, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. So David, one of the overarching themes of David's relationship with Saul is that not, is Saul's out to kill him, but David continuously shows him mercy. Mm-hmm. Saul's long gone. Even David, uh, I'm sorry, even Jonathan is long gone. Mm-hmm. And yet David is keeping that promise to both of them, keeping the promise to essentially, I, I say his enemy in quotations because David always respected the anointed office which Saul held, mm-hmm. whether or not Saul himself was worth that honor, um, giving honor to whom honor is due. But, uh, but here we have Mephibosheth, who... If we accept your speculation that even Saul sort of is scattering around, doesn't want to have anything to do with, Mm -hmm. um, he's actually fulfilling his promise to Saul through the least likely that would continue to bear the name of Saul. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And as David, like you said, is fulfilling that covenant to Jonathan, you've already said this phrase a couple of times, and it's got to echo in our ears when we hear it, steadfast love and mercy faithfulness, loyal love, you know, all these things that we hear as descriptors of God that resound through Scripture. Uh, And we're seeing that acted out by David on behalf of that covenant again with Jonathan, just as we're seeing God act out in this covenant with David. And you're, you're seeing these parallel covenants going on with the same heart in both of them of this steadfast love and mercy being shown, and a fulfilling of a covenant also. Well, we have David, the uh, type of Christ. Mm-hmm. He's inviting the, the who was once his enemy to sit at his table. Um, a lot of that will preach. Oh, man, yeah. It and will. it continues through uh, the end of the chapter, which I'm going to read now, yeah. starting with verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was both lame in both his feet. Okay, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> Gotta love the repetition there, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, author of Second Samuel. <laughs> Did we mention this guy is like really messed up? Now, right. I mean, come on. But but I, obviously the repetition is there not to um, belittle Mephibosheth. No. But to show that despite what the world might think of him and despite his history as being the descendant of the enemy of David, he now eats at the king's table. That's right. That's amazing. 
I mean, again, when details pop up in Scripture and things are repeated, it's for effect. You know, and how many times through here do we hear that Mephibosheth is going to eat at the king's table? I mean, it's one, two, I, I think at least three times in that section, maybe even four as I'm scanning across it. We hear this resounding promise that Mephibosheth, the one that is looked down on, the one that is overlooked, the one who isn't worth anything by his own words. I mean, dogs weren't looked upon like we look on dogs, and dead dogs were even less looked upon than we look on dogs. I mean, we cry over dead dogs. We have a hard time when our pets, you know, are no longer with us. And Mephibosheth is saying... uh, no, I'm, I'm the worthless thing lying on the side of the road. Who am I that you, the king, are coming to me, first of all, and second, to even welcome me to your table to always eat at your table? Not just once, not just say, hey, you know, I'm going to honor Jonathan by finding his son and treating him to a nice dinner. David housed Mephibosheth. David brought him up to the holy city. David brought him within his own household to care for him and feed him and make sure that he had everything absolutely necessary to not only provide for his daily needs in abundant ways, but to also lift up the name of the house of Jonathan once again. And here's a guy that, you know, he sees in himself that he's not worth any of it. But man, if this isn't a picture of heaven and a picture of our relationship with God and what God has done for us to come to the ones who are not deserving, who have no place in the presence of the king that should not be at the table. And he says, oh, I've got a wedding feast for you to come and enjoy and not only enjoy once, but to come into this wedding feast for eternity. And I'm going to clothe you and I'm going to bring you in and I'm going to lift you up and I'm going to make you right to be here. And I'm going to declare it upon you, even though you don't see it in yourself. I mean, as David being a type of Christ, this is such a beautiful parallel to how we see Christ acting out in history years later. It's so beautiful through here. Well, even the language of the dog, you know, obviously we think of the woman, you know, even the dog from the master's table. But I also think back to David when he's going to Saul and he says, who am I? Who's who's a, I'm a dead dog. He says that to Mm -hmm. Saul. And now Mm -hmm. here's Saul essentially coming to David saying the same thing. Yeah, a restoration, right? A reversal again of this thing. And and we see that time and again, the, the scriptures are brilliant if you understand them through the lens of Christ. Mm -hmm. Because if we were just reading this without understanding that these things ultimately point either directly to Christ or they're building the stage for Christ, then it's just like, oh, oh, okay, here's this guy, and oh, that's neat, and oh, yeah, that that David, he seemed like a pretty good king. (laughs) Yeah, that was nice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like it's, it's not even a story kind of worth, telling there's there's no big climax there's no you know but but if you look at it through christ now you see the climaxes the reversals you see that this is um something so greater than just a first level reading so to speak oh, and that's absolutely. why we that's why we do the this. restoration that's why, we dig into the, that's why we dig into the bible um that's why we have a great guests like you and others that say you know we're, we're going to put all our heads together and we're going to see what god's trying to say through this text 
Um, and so I'm just very thankful that you've joined us today. Anything left? We're reaching the end of our time together. No, I think we have uh, taken a good time to walk through this word and see God working through it to establish a house and in David, but then also show what it means for him to fulfill his covenants and then to point towards that beautiful restoration of uh, undeserving, worthless things to be brought to the presence of the Lord and how that covenant is absolutely fulfilled in Christ as well. And God's steadfast love and mercy resounds through all of it. Great way to end the program. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Matthew Canals, Associate Pastor of Community Lutheran Church in Escondido, California. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Thank you. Folks, on tomorrow's program, David's kindness backfires when he sends envoys to comfort the king of Ammon, who has lost his father. The Ammonites suspect David of spying, humiliate his men by shaving off half their beards. This provokes a war between Israel and the Ammonites, who hire the Arameans as their allies. David sends Joab and his army to face them, and they win a decisive victory. But will David be able to defeat them again and again to secure his borders? Tune in tomorrow as we end our week of study with 2 Samuel chapter 10. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong hand.